This podcast was recorded during the great coronavirus COVID-19 lockdown of 2020. get tired of being Beatles. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for us? Oh, that's all right. Yes, not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. There are many Beatles appreciation podcasts out there, many, and this one owes a debt to the fantastic I Am The Egg Pod with Chris Shaw. I highly recommend finding that podcast. It features mostly British writers and artists. Strangely enough, Chris is British and it's recorded in the UK. There you go. But I thought while listening to it, I would love to do one with Canadian music people. So here we are. My guest today is well known to Canadian music people and music fans the world over for that matter. But if you lived in the Toronto area of Canada in the late 1980s and early 1990s, and were a fan of indie music, like I was, then this man holds a particular place of distinction in your musical heart. Stephen Page, along with Ed Robertson, founded one of the most successful and significant Canadian bands of their era, the Bare Naked Ladies. Tight harmonies, great playing, and an ability to combine cleverness with a degree of whimsy into massively head-bopping, toe-tapping, enjoyable tunes. I still have my old cassette copy of their indie-released self-titled album, uh, Yellow and Black Cover. I remember going down to the A&As on Young Street in Toronto to buy it. Stephen left the ladies in 2009. He's been both busy and successful, wending his way through an eclectic selection of projects. He has written for stage and animated film. He's collaborated with the Canadian collective The Art of Time Ensemble and also played a series of gigs with the supergroup, the Trans-Canada Highwaymen. Other members of that group, Chris Murphy from Sloan, Mo Berg from Pursuit of Happiness, and Craig Northey from The Odds. Gentlemen, in the unlikely chance that you are listening you would all be more than welcome in the chair here on The Walrus Was Paul, so drop me a line. <laughs> Stephen has been very busy during these COVID times, performing live from his basement studio on Saturday nights. It's an exclusive, virtually ticketed event, Stephen Page at Home, and he plays a full set of requests, his and yours, live from his basement studio. And you can find out more info and purchase a ticket to a show by heading to stephenpage.com. I've been virtually to a couple of these shows. It's really cool and really intimate. He's also released an Instant Karma-inspired single, Isolation. That's out now on your favorite streaming platform. 
Now, along with all of that, looking back at his solo career, he's crafted three really good solo albums, the most recent of which, Discipline, Heal Thyself Part 2, I cannot recommend highly enough. If you were of a certain age, mine, the opening track, Nothing Special, will particularly resonate with you in these strange times. Musician, writer, Beatles fan, Paul McCartney fan, Stephen Page, thank you so much for stopping by to talk about Tug of War. Hey, Paul, happy to be here. Uh, What are your earliest memories of the Beatles? Well, I grew up with... um a handful of Beatles albums in the house. My parents were not huge Beatles fans, but they had uh, Sgt. Pepper, Abbey Road, and Hey Jude, which was a compilation album, which I didn't realize at the time as a little kid, I didn't realize it was a compilation album. So it has everything from like Can't Buy Me Love and I Should Have Known Better all the way to Revolution and Hey Jude. And I always just thought it was the most crazily eclectic sounding thing I'd ever heard, that it, it kind of shaped my idea of what an album was supposed to sound like, not knowing that it was, wasn't a proper album. And, and so you've chosen Paul McCartney's 1982 album, Tug of War, as the album you'd like to discuss. A fascinating pick. Why'd you pick this one? Well, I kind of figured that, you know, a lot of the Beatles records would go pretty quick, and uh, I like a good deep dive. And I'm also a bit of a crusader for... Um, uh, records that people might not think right away were some of the greatest albums out there. But I think that McCartney specifically has some really amazing albums throughout his career. And this is one I bought when it came out. I would have been, I don't know, 12 years old and, uh, you know, learned inside out. And it's still a record I come back to all the time. It, you're you're uh, a little bit younger than me, but uh, both in kind of the same age group, whereby we discovered the Beatles afterwards we discovered the echo of the beatles but i so know what you mean because i i was older than you but i i remember being so excited when tug of war came out because it was like a, a new and george martin was producing it it was going to be like the beatles that's right exactly and that's what that you know and there are there certainly are comparisons we'll get to as we go track by track through this of you know things that are, are reminiscent of old beatles records and you know i think i think especially in that time period in the uh in the 80s, I think people were who were Beatles fans were looking for echoes of what they loved about the Beatles, in uh, especially in the records of the of the guys who were once Beatles themselves. Can I give you can I give you a theory? You get theories all the time in interviews. Yeah. Uh, at first, I was wow. I'm really surprised that he took a solo Beatles album and didn't take one of the classics. And then I went, you know, I wonder if he kind of identifies a little bit with Paul McCartney in that. Both guys, and I mean, the Bare Naked Ladies weren't the Beatles. I'm not making that that comparison, but both guys in very successful groups. Right. Both guys left, and yeah. they both plowed their own furrow very much after they left. I mean, McCartney did McCartney, which couldn't have been more different coming out of Abbey Road. And you did some work with the Art of Time Ensemble. You did some scoring of a stage play. Any anything there? Or am I off on the wrong track? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I would have probably chosen this while I was in Bernicke Ladies too, but it certainly resonates with me more, I think, in the sense that I really look up to McCartney. I think that he's he has an image of being the most kind of uh, m- mediocre and mainstream in the worst way. But when you look at the, his body of work, it's actually shockingly experimental. That even kind of his his 
cheesiest stuff. It comes from, I think, his feeling of he just wants to try whatever he hears in his head. And it could be some instrumental synth piece. It could be uh, something with sped up voices. It could be a rock and roll song or it could be some kind of lush ballad. Whatever he feels like doing, he does it. And I think it's the kind of thing that Neil Young gets praised for and McCartney gets, uh, gets criticized for. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, have you ever heard his stuff that he did with uh, the producer Youth, uh, the fireman? Sure. I mean, the fireman stuff. Yeah. And, and then McCartney, too, was so far ahead of its time. Yeah. And, and it, it often gets kind of picked as a, as a terrible record. I got it for my, I think, my 11th birthday or something when, you know, when, it, when it came out. And I listened to it nonstop. And I, I love that record. And I think the picture of him... Uh, on the back or on the inside of him plugging in, you know, he did this this record direct into a uh, uh, you know a four track um, tape recorder, reel to reel recorder, has always kind of inspired my idea of how to make music. Um, you know, and in the eighties, it wasn't long after that that I had access to to a, a four track cassette recorder, and I think I always um, imagined I was recording my own version of McCartney too. All right, so it was a huge album. Uh, I remember being so excited when it came out in April of 82. I bought the cassette back at that time. Uh, there's a cassette theme going on here. I don't know if I've sure. had Bare Naked Ladies cassette. I don't know. Uh, that was the album of the summer for me. It was number one in the UK, US, Canada, Japan, global sales of about 1.75 million. So big record. So here's some context before we get into it track by track. So 1980. It kind of goes back to, and that was a shitty year for Paul McCartney. It yeah. started off the year they were going to go tour Japan with Wings, so he's still with Wings. Uh, upon his arrival in Japan, January sixteenth, bags are searched. He's arrested for possession of two hundred nineteen grams of weed. He's thrown in jail for ten days, deported. Needless to say, no tour. So then, in August of that year, he lays low. In August, he lays down a bunch of solo home demos to send to George Martin because he wanted to work with George Martin. The next album was going to be a Wings album, but he wanted George Martin to produce it. So the demos go to Martin. He listens and apparently suggests that some of the tunes weren't good enough and McCartney should try to write some new ones, which he does. Also that month, John Lennon enters the hit factory in New York City to start work on Double Fantasy. So he's coming out of retirement. There's talk about that. In October, McCartney starts rehearsals with Wings at a place called Puggins Hall in Kent for the new George Martin-produced album that is meant to start recording in November and December at Air Studios in London and then move to Montserrat to Air Studios there in the new year. Sessions at Air London start October 31st and then November 3rd with work on a song that Paul had written and intended for a Rupert the Bear animated film that he was working in. And then it was decided at some point by Paul and George during those sessions that what they would do rather than have the band is that they would cast well-known players for songs much the same way a playwright would audition actors for a stage production. So Lawrence Juber, Steve Hawley, who were in Wings at the time, told they wouldn't be required. Denny Lane was still involved at that time. On December 7th, 1980, a bunch of tracks are recorded at Air Studios London. On December 8th, two more tracks are laid down. On December 9th, John Lennon is murdered. Everything stops. McCartney, under siege at his home in Sussex, goes into the studio. 
He didn't want to sit at home. They worked on overdubs for a track called Rain Clouds. Uh, Patty Maloney of the Chieftains played the Uliam Pipes on it, which came out later as a B-side, but things pretty much shut down. Little more work was done on the same tracks in Air London and at Parkgate Studios before the sessions moved to Air Studios in Montserrat. So I tell you all of that to tell you this. Stephen, for me, it was very much an album of, of two parts. The initial starting saying it's going to be with Wings and then at some point, no, no, this is going to be a Paul McCartney solo album. Right. And really the first Paul McCartney solo album since McCartney, I think at that point. Um, uh, well, I guess he did McCartney 2 just before this. So he had McCartney, McCartney 2, and then, but his kind of his pop records, so to speak, were always with Wings or with Paul and Linda McCartney for, for Ram. Um, but yeah, it really changed. One, one thing I always find kind of interesting about this record is he had worked with some producers here and there, like Chris Thomas on Back to the Egg before. But traditionally, when Paul was working on his own records, even if he wasn't producer by name, he was running the the ship. And he decided he wanted to go back to having a producer. And one of the things that George Martin had said to him was, well, if you want to have me as a producer then you have to listen to what I say. Uh, you have to take, take my direction, which McCartney was not good at doing anymore. He had really, you know, we'd seen it happen even at the end of the Beatles where they felt that he had taken control in the studio. And that's kind of the way he was used to running things. So for for someone to say to somebody as successful and renowned and um, kind of, uh, nobody had ever said no to McCartney as a solo artist. And, um, Martin said, these songs aren't good enough. Go back and, and do them again or start again or come up with some new ones. And you hear some of the, the demos that have been released later in, in deluxe sets and so on. And they're not, you know, they're not up to the standards. And it's amazing to see that he actually, I think with some hesitancy, but eventually listened to George Martin and, uh, and made a better record for it. Have you ever had that happen to you? A producer? Like, is, is, there, a, is there a sort of a degree of check the ego at the door if you're going to have an actual producer come in? Yeah, I mean, you that's why you have a producer. I mean, traditionally, when I was in, like when I was in Bernie Kid Ladies, you have five strong musical voices with points of view, and, and there are places where we would all meet, but then there'd be places where you would diverge, and the job of a producer is often to make the final call or convince everybody else about what's good about the idea they eventually decide on, uh, or sometimes trick the musicians into doing something else that they can listen back to and go, oh, that was good. I wouldn't have thought of that myself. You know, the best best producers I've worked with were not necessarily um, slave drivers, but they were uh, really good at um, encouraging collaboration behind, between the musicians and finding the uh, finding the middle ground for everybody where people could do their best their best work. Well, we can, we will talk a lot about what a genius George Martin was, um, but let's start to put it on uh, the turntable. Side right. one, cut one, and tug of war. It's a tug of war What with one thing and another It's a tug of war what are your thoughts on this track? Um, see, I, I I always liked it, but it was kind of like it, it, 
for me as a kid listening to it, I, it was just the prelude to listening to Take It Away, which was the big single off that record that I really wanted to get to. And, you know, it does have a, a kind of a genius fade from the end of, of Tug of War into Take It Away. Um, but I listen to it now, and it has so much of what I love about Paul McCartney. You know, a beautiful soaring melody, um, but also it's a little, like the melody itself is not, a, uh, it feels like it's falling off a cliff. Like it's these, it's, it's kind of these, these long phrases that don't seem like other songs I've heard before. There is something odd about the, about the way it scans. And then you have these backup vocals by him and Linda, which are such, they are a hallmark of his sound, his sound. And I think, you know, with Linda being God, God, she must be it must be uh, twenty five years now or something, or close to that. Um, that's an element of his music that is no longer there. And it's so distinctive to start off a record with a sound that, that that is that distinctive. I think it kind of gives you a sense of where he's been coming from, at least. It, it, it's funny. It it so doesn't sound like a. Wings record, and I, I think in part that was because the dynamic in Wings was Paul, Linda, and Denny Lane. Denny doesn't sing at all on this on this record. Eric Stewart, uh, formerly of 10CC, comes in, and, and Eric Stewart also on backing vocals. A completely different sound. Yes, with Eric Stewart in there, I think you get even more of that 10CC breathy, I'm not in love, backup vocal sound, um, which... You know who know who's who who started it? Was it you know chicken or egg? Is it wings or or ten cc or both? Kind of influencing each other through that through that period in the seventies. Um, and then on top of this, you've got George Martin's uh, amazing orchestral arrangement. That's what jumps out to me. As, as I just it's just this beautiful orchestral arrangement. It's uh, the strings recorded at EMI Studio One, 20 violins, eight violas, six cellos, three basses. Uh, I mean, it, and it just, again, I, I'm not a musician, but the, especially at the end when it goes out, I think it finishes in a major chord because uh, it's a happy chord, a hopeful chord. Yeah, yeah, it does a, a minor to major change there, right? Um, but it's dumb, bum, 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 training growing up but i was never very confident in it i was always surrounded by people who were much more accomplished in those kinds of things but in the last bunch of years i've been doing a lot more scoring and actually been doing shows with symphony orchestras and have done some scoring of uh, arrangements of my stuff for full symphony which has been you know as learning a whole new skill set but um really fun to be able to pull it off well i don't want to get too down the rabbit hole and get off topic Stephen. but it must be an amazing feeling when you've written something on paper and then hear it presented by a big orchestra i mean the hair on the back of your neck must stand up it's incredible and when it, when it works too what a great feeling of accomplishment it's like oh that thing i meant to happen is happening and it sounds even better because then you also have you know, if even if you're programming it in MIDI before you put it on on, on notated on paper, it's not the same as having actual musicians who not only bring their skill but they bring taste to it. So things like the way a phrase is shaped, you can 
lay all that out on paper, and you should. But when they do it as a section or as a soloist, all of a sudden they bring something to it that I wouldn't because I'm not a violinist or a flutist or anything else. Would you say, I mean, George Martin renowned as a producer, but do you think he was equally as great as an orchestrator? Absolutely. I mean, his orchestrations are, I think, have influenced not only pop music, but kind of contemporary classical uh, arrangers um, since since that thing. He has a distinctive style um, that, uh, but also he's very flexible. He could, you know, he could adjust to just about any of the Beatles pieces and not make them sound the same as each other. I just, the, the thing I love about him is, is it's so... They seem so sympathetic to the song. They they don't they don't make it too saccharine. They don't they're not overbearing. They just whatever the song needs, he seems to be able to at least right right down to the string quartet with yesterday uh, right. or or this song. Or Eleanor Rigby is another great quartet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's track one, one of my favorites, and it segues. You made reference to it. Track two. In to take it away, that great little drumming by Steve Gadd and Ringo. I mean, what a great tune! Yeah, and that's uh, that's that's Steve Gadd and Ringo together, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, that's one of the greatest things about Ringo is like in the especially in the seventies, the two drummer thing that he would do so often with with Jim Keltner to be able to translate that over with with Steve Gadd. It because. You know, there's no other drummer like Ringo, um, and and to be able to kind of combine that with another distinctive and uh, and talented drummer like Gad, you get a totally different kind of focus on the groove. And then you've got you know, you've of course you've got McCartney's great bass playing on it too. But when I listen to it, it sounds to me as though Ringo's drumming in the chorus and Steve Gadd is drumming in the melody. Just the oh, that could that could be they could be cutting back and forth. Yeah, I I I, I have no idea. Uh, just you know, I have to listen to it again now. Thank you, but <laughs> well, those distinctive Ringo drum fills, right? I mean, they're, right. they're so distinctive. Um, the the tune was originally written for Ringo. But McCartney, in his own words, I thought it would suit me better the way it went into the chorus and stuff. I didn't think it was very Ringo. Yeah, I mean that's those are choices you make as a as a, a writer and a performer. But uh, I always I I don't know. I think sometimes when you when you think that way, you're often selling the musician short. Sometimes it's nice to be able to bring a musician on board who's not known for doing a specific style that you have in mind and see what they can bring to it. Often they can bring something you couldn't have imagined. And you referenced Eric Stewart and the 10cc sound. I mean, you really get it in this song, I think. Yeah, totally. Those uh, those ahs over top of the, uh, the, stat, the uh, horn solo there. Yep, a couple of trumpets, two saxes, and a trombone. Uh, now... You must remember the video. Uh, all I remember is kind of they kind of act out the song, right? Well, it, it it was just there was George Martin on the piano, right? Steve Gadd and Ringo on drums, yeah. Uh, Eric Stewart, uh, and then uh, <laughs> they cut, they cut to a shot, and they've got John Hurt <laughs> driving driving the car. That's right, he's driving the car, and but then the, yeah, then there is like you know. Uh, in the corner, yeah. Right, even the bar. There's uh, an important uh, impresario with a message for the band. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I just, it sort of brings me to another theme for this album, like where they talked about casting it, and 
I mean, I guess if you're Paul McCartney, you can get anybody you want. Right. Yes, that's probably true. <laughs> you have James Coburn on the cover of uh, Band on the Run. Because yeah, it's, I just, uh, you know, he gets Steve Gadd to come in, who's of right. course brilliant drummer with the Steely Dan, among other, uh, I think 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, he plays on that yep. as well. Uh, and then he's got Ringo showing up, he brings in uh, Stanley Clark. Oh, Stanley Clark on bass, yeah. Brings Stanley, brings uh, Carl Perkins in. Yeah. And then he brings in John Hurt to be in the video. Dave Maddox on drums on a couple songs, I think, too. Yep, yep. So, uh, I, I wonder, uh, like, I wonder if that was a conscious thing. Uh, if if he thought, you know what, I'm I'm Paul McCartney, I can get anybody I want. Oh, I think so, and I think, but I think some of that is also um, George Martin. You know, George Martin had done records that were, uh, you know, whether it was. Um, uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra or Jeff Beck or whatever else he you know he he'd done these kind of fusiony kinds of records where he may have worked with some of these artists and said this is the person we need for this um, he'd worked with over the course of the seventies enough other artists where I think he probably had a lot of the contacts and, and could say oh this is the right guy for this song so let's move to cut three side one somebody who cares. Written in Montserrat just a few days after McCartney had arrived, uh, a few days before Steve Gadd and Stanley Clark showed up. I think you I think Dave Maddox actually does play on on this track. Mm-hmm. Um, what did this song do for you? This is one of my favorite songs. I just I love this, and and I play it for other people, and they go, I don't know, it's not really for me. But there's something about it, something about the way he taps on the guitar in the breaks between the verses, the way his voice. The immediacy and intimacy of his voice. Um, you know, I don't even mind the, the panpipes. <laughs> Compliment the song. Yeah. What, what about the Spanish guitar playing? I think it's beautiful. Is that McCartney? Yes, it is. Yeah. No, I think it's a beautiful solo on that. See, I could sing all of these instrumental parts to you if you want it right now. See, it's great. Well, the cool thing about the guitar part, he was in there doing it, and he said he didn't have he didn't have that, so he told the two guys who were playing with him. Uh, said, just go away for a cup of tea for an hour and let me work this out. And then he wrote that little part. Yeah. Um, does that happen to you a lot in the studio where you, you haven't got something finished? Oh, totally. And and sometimes if, if, if you're looking for a solo or an instrumental part or something like that, quite often what you need is to not have anybody else breathing down your neck while you're figuring it out. <laughs> but I know something needs to go there and you work on it. And, you know, that's one of the things now that I make records largely on my own is I have to tell myself to stop eventually that I'm done. Sometimes giving yourself a bit of a time limit and the guys come back from having their cup of tea, you kind of know you have to have it done by then. Tell me about that style of playing. What adaptations do you have to make? Is it difficult to learn? What's unique about it? You know, it's influenced by um, probably by Spanish music and that kind of thing. But it's also, I think, if you listen back to... um, early Beatles records and all kinds of things where he, whether it's um, that idea of kind of, kind of Latin ish 
without really being authentic is a big part of of stuff that that McCartney would do. Whether it's "And I Love Her," I think this is an extension of "And I Love Her" in a way. Uh, but even stuff like "You Know My Name," look up the number. They have this kind of this uh, this mambo kind of thing going on. Um, that I think it's it's his interpretation of what he remembers hearing, and I think that's what makes. Uh, his music special is he's not just lifting something from another uh another uh genre of music but he's kind of using his it's filtered through his own style steven do you think he wanted to do i mean obviously he couldn't do a beatles record but do you think he wanted to do a beatles sounding record when he set out to make tug of war i my sense with mccartney is at least at that point in his life if you asked him and if he was to answer honestly, because I think sometimes his answers are a little glossed over or, they, you know, just to make himself look okay. Uh, but I think he would have felt that every record he made is what the Beatles would have sounded like at that point in time. Um, you know, I think his sense was, I am basically the Beatles, so this is good. what a Beatles record would sound like. Um, so I don't know. I think maybe part of him wanted to prove to other people that he had it in him to do and maybe had chosen to not do that previously, but but that he still could if he wanted to. Yeah, I, I always wonder because he, I mean, he went out to reunite, if you will, with George Martin and have George Martin come in and do it. Who's going to give you a Beatles sound? He had Ringo come in and play the drums, which is you know such a thing with the the Beatles sound. And I, and I just wonder if he thought, yeah, I'd like to do that again. I'm, I guess we'll never know. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, the la- the you know previous records, McCartney two and uh, and Back to the Egg before that, not that successful. I mean, he had a big hit, big hit single with um, Coming Up, but you know the critical response was not great, and Back to the Egg was kind of seen as him trying to kind of jump on a new wave band bandwagon or something. And perhaps it was a way of him being able to say, well, this is not a bandwagon I'm jumping on. This is me and who I am and where I come from. And the other thing, if, if he was setting out to do a, a Beatles-sounding record, he most definitely, I think, was setting out to not do a Wings record. That's right, yeah. And it, it, it just doesn't, uh, whether it's Denny Lane not singing, but it, it doesn't have that Wingsy sound to me anyway. Mm-hmm. So next cut is... What's That You're Doing with Stevie Wonder. Now, be honest with me. When you first got the album, did you like this song or was it a skip over? It was totally a skip over. I mean, and I, and I love I love Stevie Wonder and I loved Stevie Wonder then. Um, so I thought this had like the elements I liked about Stevie Wonder and not the elements I cared for about Paul McCartney. I mean, I felt like it just, it. it all I could do is think, I, it sounds like they're having fun. <laughs> and I liked that part. Um, you know, and there's there's another there's a jam out kind of song on the, on the follow up record on Pipes of Peace called Yeah Yeah that's like him and Stanley Clark jamming and I think Steve Gadd as well and uh, it's also the same kind of thing where you go not a great piece of music but sounds like they're having some good good times gives you some setting I guess and it's it also makes sure that that Stevie Wonder's appearance on Ebony and Ivory later doesn't come out of nowhere that he already had. Now he has a presence on the record. I hadn't thought of that. All comes down to, I guess it all comes down to how you line the album up. 
Well, that's it. I think the sequencing is always, especially in those days of the vinyl record, incredibly important because it's it it sets up it sets a scene that you're listening to. So you're still on side one, and now Stevie Wonder's in the record. His voice, his groove, um, his sense of humor, all those things are there. Um, so that when we get to Ebony and Ivory, of course, which is kind of schmaltzy, it's not the only thing we know of. Stevie at that point. We, we see that it's part of a bigger relationship inside the picture of the album. Clock's in at six minutes and 23 seconds. It's, uh, it's a lot. I bet you it was, cut, it was probably cut down from the whatever that reel of tape held, 18 minutes. Whatever the reel <laughs> well, we, we can only help that, uh, we can only hope that maybe the 18 minute version leaks out at some point. <laughs> we can all enjoy it. It was a jam session. Uh, Stevie Wonder playing on a synth that was a Yamaha CS80. Yeah. And I mean, amazing. I don't have to. We all know what an amazing synth player Stevie Wonder is. And McCartney played everything else, and then added a ton of overdubs back in London with uh, backing vocals and bass and and uh, and the whole bit. Right. Well, and it's at least it's better. Did you ever hear that the the famous um, uh, what is it a toot a toot and a snore in '74 bootleg? No. So there's a- this is a bootleg of, um, I guess it was when they were recording the John Lennon rock and roll album. So it's in LA and it's um, late at night and it's uh, Stevie Wonder on drums. No, I think maybe it's McCartney on drums. Stevie Wonder on keyboard, Harry Nielsen and uh, John Lennon uh, trying to do like rock and roll standards and stuff. And it's terrible. It's just like they're so high and drunk and... It's, and the mix is bad because it's just their monitor mix, so you can't really hear what's going on. But it actually was McCartney and, and Lennon together in the studio in, in 1974, but with Stevie Wonder and Harry Nielsen. So this is much better than that, at least. Wow. Harry Nielsen, John Lennon at that time, McCartney. There would have been some, uh, there would have been some beer consumed. I think some beer and some, and maybe some uh, pharmaceuticals. <laughs> and speaking of hired guns, as I was earlier, Andy McKay comes in uh, from Roxy Music to play the uh, Lyricon part. So, hey, there you go. Hey, you, you want a Lyricon part? Who do you call? <laughs> There's only one guy. <laughs> so he came in and did that. So now we get to the last cut on side one here today, written as a eulogy for John Lennon. Uh, beautiful song. And if I said I really knew you well, what would your answer be? If you were here today, ooh, here today. Yeah, I mean, when I first heard it, I was my mind was blown because I was, you know, I was so as a kid. I don't think I'd had anybody that meant anything to me beyond, like, at all. Anybody close to me had died. Any heroes of mine, had none of them had died in, in my kind of conscious lifetime. And I was, you know, such a big Beatles fan that the death of John Lennon really shook me up. And, of course, the, the way that was portrayed in the press, there's the famous, you know, video of... of uh, McCartney outside of Air Studios on Oxford Street coming out in the, and the, you know, because he was going to work because that's all he could do at that point was keep going, keep recording because he was um, so distraught. But, you know, of course, at cameras and microphones in your face and people looking for a re- reaction in his 
choice of words were, it's a drag man, people thought he didn't care. But of course, the relationship was so much more complicated than that. And his grief was so much more complicated than that. And also remember, this is uh, born in the 1940s, British stiff upper lip still is a big part of kind yes, of yes. your response to anything like that. And, um, you know, this song was a much, was an honest expression of his connection and his grief. And of course, it has that beautiful um, uh, George Martin string arrangement as well. But you know, I've seen I've seen McCartney a few times live, and I love the shows. They've been so good. But sometimes when he tells a story explaining a song, I f- I feel like he's found the nicest way to tell it, and it doesn't feel as 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 sincere as I think the song itself might be. And uh, I've, I've I've heard that so many times now that uh, that I kind of I'd rather remember being twelve years old and listening to this with headphones on. Yeah, he usually, he'll play this uh, usually after he plays something on the ukulele, uh, right. the George Harrison. Now, but, but as, a, I mean, to me, I look at it, I can't imagine the pressure that he must have felt because this album was coming out. Everybody expected him to have a song about John, uh, whether that was fair or not. And mm-hmm. I mean, man, he like he so delivered it. It's not mawkish. Right. Um, it's it's just a beautiful song. I, I'm talk about answering the call. That's right. Yeah, I mean, he could have made something so much more grandiose and and model and and uh, insincere, and instead he made something that was very um, uh, personal and succinct. And then to have that that George Martin arrangement makes you instantly think of what. George and John did together, or what Paul and John did together. Does it evoke yesterday at all for you because of the arrangement? It does, which is great because what's what's the line in, the, in uh, "All You Ever Had Was Yesterday"? In uh, uh, oh, how yeah. do you? Yes, how do you say? <laughs> You know, it's like the one song that doesn't have John Lennon on it. I have thought about that a bunch of times. That this sounds the most like the song, like the Beatles songs that have no John Lennon on them. It was written in the loft of the mill that has become his recording studio, and in his words, anyway, I kind of forgot about the whole thing until I sat down one day and struck the beginning chords of "Here Today," and it fell out. You ever had a song do that? Yeah, that's the best way to do it. I mean, you you spend your whole life as a writer trying to trying to craft songs, but really what you're hoping for are these ones that just fall out. And just you know, it's a handful of them that happen that way, but they're quite often the best ones you've, you'll ever write. Uh, I've seen McCartney play this live as as you have. Uh, how do you think he keeps it together? Uh, I mean, have you ever? Do you are there any songs in your catalog that were written for somebody who's not here anymore or a situation that was very emotional for you? And how do you detach yourself when you have to go up and perform it? Um, usually if it's a song I've written, I can usually kind of put my my head somewhere else, thinking about the, it's, it's somewhere technical in the performance of the song. Quite often it relies on it's the audience's response. If you see or can feel emotion coming from them, um, it's not easy to not get swept up by that. And I think that that's when things get emotional. Um, you know, for me, probably I think about an, an, a moment like um, when uh, when Jack Layton died and his family asked me to sing 
Hallelujah, which of course I didn't write um, at his at the state funeral. That was really hard to keep together my emotions because my job was to convey the song and uh, you know looking out into Roy Thompson Hall where that was and being able to see you know make eye contact with Jack's family uh, that was tough I mean but it, I was proud of myself for pulling it off because uh, my job was not to emote my job was to communicate the song and I think that's the thing about songs that are that are emotional is that the emotion is for the audience to feel and I think you have to kind of remember that when you're performing. I know that when I've seen McCartney play it, and I don't know, Stephen, if you felt the same way, but it's, it's amazing how intimate suddenly an 18 or 20,000 seat sure. building can feel when he does that song. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, you know, he's, a, he's one of the greats. And it was scored by George Martin, a couple of violins, viola, and a cello, so very yesterday-ish. Mm -hmm. So then we flip the album over and cut one on side two, Ballroom Dancing. Great side starter. The genre of uh, your mother should know, or something like that. Except even more, uh, even more pastiche-like. Um, but it's fun, and it's got it's got that great McCartney uh, kind of piano part that I love so much. And um, and I like, I, you know, one of the things I like that he does in this, and I think has been a big influence on me, is to the sections feel like you're walking into different rooms. So, and then some of that is a George Martin thing, the vocal treatment. The vocal treatment is very dry in the verses. And then, uh, then you get this kind of little bit more rock and roll tape slap sound in the choruses or in the choruses. And then, uh, and those, you know, every section, the pre-chorus has a different sound again. And each one is like walking into a different room. Well, you it's funny you mentioned that because I had the same feeling when I was listening to Discipline, Heal Thyself Part 2 that I talked about off the top. Um, and I was listening to it on a headset. So you, yeah. you really hear it. So you get the, the great production extravaganza that I thought nothing special was. I mean, right off the bat, things bouncing right. around in the channels. But you, you talk about sort of the suite, and I'm just thinking out loud here, but uh, you go down and uh, cut eight, uh, you fucked yourself. Yeah. Hilarious. Uh, <laughs> the first time you hear it. But then it goes, it, it, almost, it, it almost joins up with done. Right. So it goes, goes from this kind of like my my kind of fake Steely Dan electric piano thing with backup vocals into uh, into almost like a Rodgers and Hammerstein waltz. Yeah, uh, I just I I mean McCartney does it all the time. The Beatles did sure. it, but you certainly uh, and it's something you must like. Do you like to have little bits of songs that, for lack of a better description, you stitch together? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think usually that's on purpose rather than like, I think with uh, side two of Abbey Road, they kind of went, we have a bunch of John songs that he hasn't finished and we're afraid we're not going to get this record done. What do we do with them? Um, but I think it's more like, I think that's all this song has to say. 
maybe it needs to go somewhere else. And then you write a new, a new section slash new song. So then we go from ballroom dancing. So just a, just a good rollicking song. It's one of the older cuts yeah. in the album. Now, doesn't ballroom dancing also include some ballroom dancing commentary by Peter Marshall of the Hollywood Squares? Oh, that is very good. You've, you've done your homework. <laughs> yes, he's the, uh, the cha-cha-cha guy. That's right. And also, it refers to ballroom dancing as Big B-D. Is that a thing? Does anybody, like in the ballroom dancing world, they're like, oh, doing the old Big BD. I've never heard it. No, I think that, like, then that's kind of classic McCartney taking the cheap way out. Just, yeah, the last, the big pow, the end of the, every chorus, Big BD. Well, what's Big BD? That doesn't matter. Let's just go ahead and do it. <laughs> it sounds good. Like, yeah, <laughs> put all this care and attention into every element of the record and then just not bother when it comes to some of the lyrics. <laughs> Uh, harshly judged ballroom dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I still love it. I just I like where he chooses to be lazy and where he chooses to not be. I think it's I I find that fascinating. When I when I listen to it now, it's probably my least favorite cut on the album. But when I sure. you know, back in the day, it, it was the you know the never ending uh, you know what's that you're doing Stevie Wonder Jam on side one right. that we talked about. But now it's this one. I, if, if I had a, a skip, uh, not that Paul's going to lose any sleep over that. No, he doesn't care what we think. And then into The Pound is Sinking. And now this is one that I was just talking about in terms of he stitches together a couple of songs. Sure. And I love I it. I think this is also the most Wings sounding song on the record. Like this could actually kind of work on a record like uh, Venus and Mars or Band on the Run. What sounds wingy to you about it? Uh, well, it's got the most kind of rock rock elements to it, the rock guitar. Um, and I think about, so you've got this kind of, this single melody. I think about something like uh, Picasso's Last Words or something like that. And then it goes to this, to the groovy, hear me love, I can't be held responsible now. Can't be held responsible now. That kind of groovy thing. And then into the very kind of stark, Pound a sinking thing. It those all those sections really reminds me of something that could be on one of those earlier Wings records. And then I just love you could sing it, I couldn't, but I love the oh, it didn't happen. Exactly. Oh, like he gives you something even in a song like this. Yeah, and that's got that kind of to me like uh, I reminds me of something like. Beware My Love or something like that. Yep, yep. I'm just trying to think of other examples of, I mean, you talked about side two of Abbey Row where they stitched a bunch together, but Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey. Yep. Would be one. What's the big long one at the end of Red Rose Speedway? Oh, that's, uh, yes, uh, it finishes up with uh, Power Cut. It's big long medley. Yeah, yep. Uh, Closes out, and then uh, Venus and Mars Rock Show, maybe? Yep, exactly. Although to me, it's just, I love the first part. The Venus and Mars part, and then I don't care so much for the rock show part. Agreed, agreed. Uh, we're on the same page with that one, and on and on the same page with ballroom dancing and and the pound is sinking. Yeah. So let's go to the next cut, which is Wonderlust, uh, written about a boat that the McCartney spent some time on back in 1977. It's one of these. Uh, I I think this is one of the most beautiful songs on this record. I think it's amazing, and the singing is so gorgeous in that high range. Light. 
You know, he has so many different voices. He has that. He has that kind of sh- screamy uh, Little Richard rock and roll voice. He has uh, the, his kind of lower Elvis rumbly kind of voice. Uh, he has that really intimate, soft sound, and then he's got that clear as a bell high stuff, which is on on Wanderlust, and the piano is beautiful. It's got that great uh, George Martin orchestration again, including the that low brass stuff that sounds like Mother Nature's Son. Boom, 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 boom. Um, you know, so in a certain way, it has a lot of those Beatlesy elements, but it's much bigger and much more grandiose than I think anything Beatles did. Um, and then you say it's about their boat, which sounds like very unrelatable to the common man. <laughs> but I never, I never thought about it being. I mean, apart from the captain said there'll be a there'll be a bus. Like it seems sounds metaphorical to me. And then to have that beautiful counter melody that comes in. The, oh, where did I go wrong, my love? And there you go. That that's the warm, intimate McCartney voice that he and he he's doubled it, which he's so great at as well. To have that doubled, intimate voice with the melody of Wanderlust going over the top. It, it's uh, I love you pointing out the the backing vocals um, because that's I mean one of the reasons I thought you'd be a great guy to talk to. You could you can tell how much effort you put in to the backing vocals on your stuff. Is that an acquired skill? It's something I've always loved. One of the funniest things is like, I love arranging and writing the backup vocal parts and, and you know, Barenaked Ladies, it was five good singers. So we can all sing together. And part of the sound of that band was our voices blending. But one of the things I loved to do was sing my own backup vocals, which is kind of, it's counter to what makes being in a band so great. Doing my own records, I can do all my own backup vocals um, because there's something I like about the sound and the feeling of my voice stacked against each other. Um, and it's just a, it's just a musical choice. Sometimes you're, it's like mm, I need somebody else to sing this part because I need to separate it from me. Um, you know, have one part stand apart from another. But, uh, you know, I think McCartney does such a good job of layering his own voices. But again, on this record, one of the classic things he can do is then bring Linda in to sing with him. And all of a sudden, it's a completely different sound again. It, it must be an interesting thing the first time you, you try to sing harmony with somebody. I would think you'd know immediately whether or not whether or not it's cream and sugar and coffee or whether or not it's vinegar in the coffee. It, like it, it, you must just know. Yes, you do. And that, that when I first started singing with Ed Robertson, I think we both knew right away that it was, you know, it was meant to be. And I think that's, you know, that's what you always hear about Paul and John, too. Well, here's an interesting story about it, uh, which I didn't know until I was researching to have this chat with you. So M- Paul McCartney initially wanted George Harrison to add a guitar solo to Wonderlust. So uh, he, Linda, and George Martin and Denny Lane rolled along to visit George at his house. He had a studio there, Friar Park, Henley on Thames. And before they got to work on Wonderlust for George's guitar part, he asked Paul and Linda to record some backing vocals for a song he was doing called All Those Years Ago. Right. So they took all day doing that and didn't have time for George to record his guitar part. (laughs) 
as the story goes. Uh, and then I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Uh, I've, I saw it in one of the plethora of Beatles nerdy books that I have, and uh, and read that. And so they ended up adding the Philip Jones brass ensemble part, which probably did the track more justice than a guitar solo. I think in the end. Yeah, although it would always be nice to hear a George guitar solo. Like that's when one of the things I love about you know when when you were asking me what record I wanted to talk about, one of the ones I had talked had suggested was was uh uh Ringo's Goodnight Vienna record um which is you know people don't think about Ringo records as being great but I really like a lot of them and those records those first few Ringo Ringo records especially Ringo and Goodnight Vienna are the really the closest you'll ever see to a Beatles reunion there you know there that's where you can hear all the different sounds of all the different Beatles on different tracks um and it's a, that's a fun thing to be able to kind of piece together their collaborations as few as they they may have been in those uh, in those later years. Well, I'd, I'd love to have you back one day to do Ringo. Uh, yeah, I, I mean that I is oh, that is just uh, uh, the uh, the song that he does with George Harrison, "Photograph." That beautiful twelve yeah. string guitar. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's great. It's classic. Uh, so we move on to another one that it's probably not a classic, but it's it's fantastic to hear these two guys playing together. The song's called Get It. And again, in the spirit of the album, I can get whoever I want. He flies in the legend Carl Perkins to yeah. play with him on a track. This puts a smile on my face. What about you? Oh, it's great. You know, I, I, I always loved hearing these two guys together. And Carl Perkins was one of my dad's favorites when I was growing up. So, you know, we'd see him on TV and my dad would get very excited. So I knew that this was somebody important. I want to get it. You know, it's funny, like they talk about, it seems like they're generations apart. They're probably 10 years apart in age or something, but, uh, Paul seems kind of like the happy little kid to be playing with, with uh, you know the the older legend. Who's the biggest legend? Legend to you, or maybe to all of us that you've you played with and had to pinch yourself a little. I've been lucky. There've been a few. I mean, we got to, to perform uh, close to you with Burt Backrack on piano. That was pretty pretty heavy duty. Um, and I got to sing So Long, Marianne with Leonard Cohen, which was probably, you know, maybe the musical highlight of my life. But I also think like, we did a track with um, with Tom Jones for his, one of, for his duets album. Um, we did a cover of Little Green Bag. And uh, to stand next to him in the studio, like the band were, were out in the, in the live room and he and I were standing by the console in the, in the control room singing. And to hear that huge voice come out of his giant barrel chest while we were singing was just absolutely, like, just killer. What a thrill. It was like, wow, this guy is for real. You are a lucky man to have gotten to get that close to probably some people who you really, really admire. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, and also as a kid, you know, I might have thought, oh, Tom Jones, he's kind of cheesy. And then you get there in the room and you go, no, 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 this guy's amazing. Mm-hmm. And are those guys, when you get in with them, are they pros? And if, if you understand what I mean by that. Absolutely. Like, um, we went and did like one take with, uh, with or two takes with, with Tom Jones. And then he goes, oh, boys, my voice is fucked. And he leaves. 
was like, okay. He did it. It was like, what, whatever he did was amazing. It was killer. But he just came in, did his thing, and left. And I remember doing, we did an Anne Murray Christmas special like 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And, you know, sang a Christmas song with Anne Murray. And she just, every note was perfect, perfectly in tune. Her phrasing was impeccable. And all she needed was two takes and she was done. Where I'd be always like, I, I always think, oh, I only need three takes. And then I want to go in and like, oh, can I fix this one word here? Can I fix that note? And some of those people, no, just ultimate pros. Hey, when I listen to Get It, I don't know about you, but it, back on that theme of could this have been sort of a bit of a Beatles album, there was nobody who emulated Carl Perkins more than George Harrison in the early days right. of the Beatles. Right, and he was the guy who covered his songs and so on. I mean, yeah, totally the guitar style and everything else. I, I could so picture George playing that guitar part that was in it. Yeah, uh, and then there was a there was another song they did that didn't see the light of day until fifteen years later uh, when Carl put it on his album "Go Cat Go," and it was a song that Carl had written for Paul McCartney called "Old Friend." And uh, I'll just tell you the story. I was doing my research for this. And I guess he played it to McCartney. He wrote it when he was there in Montserrat. And McCartney started crying. So uh, he got up and, and after they'd finished and he left and Linda caught him out in the hallway. And he said, Linda, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make, make you and Paul cry. And she said, he's crying because he needed to. He hasn't been able to really break down since that happened to John. And she put her arm around him and said, uh, how did you know? And he said, no, what? And she said to him, there's three people and you now who know the last words John Lennon said to Paul McCartney in person. And I guess when they were departing, Lennon slapped him on the shoulder the last time they saw one another in person and said, think about me every now and again, old friend. Wow. And those are the lyrics in the song. Wow. Yeah. I mean, what a story. Uh, and it, it, I've heard Carl Perkins telling the story. It was, it's on uh, YouTube. You can search it. Wow. I did not know that. That's yeah, no, I didn't either. And, and the laughter at the end, uh, it was a, a phrase that Perkins had used called uh, shitting in high cotton. All right, okay. And I guess McCartney didn't know what it meant. Uh, apparently it means you, in Southern slang, you're doing well for yourself. So I'd right. say, Stephen, you're, you're shitting in high cotton these days. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I love that laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes right into another little track be What You See, yep. th that I guess was written specifically as a filler. Well, it sounds like a McCartney 2 track, although it's, you know, it's got the, the vocorder vocal, but it, it's got that, um, that uh, kind of spooky and ambient and, uh, you know, synth, synth kind of sound, but I, I always liked it. I kind of wanted, wanted more of it, honestly. Kind of the weird lyric, uh, very... Um... I think I heard somebody else say, uh, very uh, reminiscent of, you know, that that movement you need is on your shoulder. You know, what does it really mean? Right. Yeah. I always just thought it was more like uh, like a George Harrison song, like The Inner Light or something like that. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, you can hear that too. I'm looking at the uh, at the sheet music here. You can, you can see it. Nobody else can. But... It's a bar. It's a bar of six four, and then a bar of four four, and then a bar of nine four. It's got this kind of very free uh, meter to it, which kind of makes it seem even more uh, floaty. Well, explain to me what is a vocoder. 
So it's it's a thing that takes um, it takes a signal through a microphone usually uh, of something like a like a voice, and it routes the signal through a synthesizer. Um, and you can have any level of like either using part of the actual voice sound or it's all synthesizers of it's being triggered by the voice. So it's, it's a synthesizer sound, but it's being it's being shaped by by uh, the voice into the microphone. Have you used one? They're hard to use. They're hard to set up so they sound right. I actually did use one on uh, on the last single I did in this isolation song. I used them as the backing vocals, but it takes a lot to make them not sound like just trash. To make them actually sound, you hear them on a record and you go, "Oh, that sounds cool." It's kind of this smooth synth sound. Most of the time, like when you're trying to put a vocal through a through a vo- vocal order, there's all this extra noise and crap that you got to gate out. It takes it's. It, I'm not a synth wizard. <laughs> well, nobody else can see this, but I can. Uh, Stephen is in his uh, home studio, and I can see a set of keyboards, numerous guitars, more oh. guitars than I could count, uh, and sheet music. So you you look like a, a guy who knows his way around keyboards and instruments. I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> So be what you see. Then that segues into "Dress Me Up as a Robber," which was the first track they recorded in the Montserrat sessions. It's a pile of fun to me. reminds me of kind of like it actually reminds me of Aztec camera like it has that I guess it's the it's the it's the guitar reminds me of of uh, oblivious by Aztec camera I like it I, I like it a lot now but at the time I was always I always thought it was, thought it was kind of dull when you say oblivious I can hear it yeah uh, and he he can write songs like that to Magneto and Titanium Man. Just to, right. makes up characters. It just uh, I mean, not everybody can do that. Yeah, uh, and it's I, I think it's kind of fun, and I love this. Now, do you think the Spanish guitar sounding solo in it was that played slow and sped up? Because if not, that's a that's a damn good playing. Is that him playing it? Yes, it is. I don't know. Then I mean, they could. They certainly wouldn't. You know that that would be the uh, um, the in my life piano trick. Uh, that's how they do that that piano part, right? And uh, it would make sense if it was if it was sped up. But I don't know. Maybe he's just he is pretty awesome. I've seen him play some pretty killer guitar parts before. Yeah, I mean that is some serious picking. If that's I always wondered. I wonder if they if he played it at, at half speed and then they right. they sped it up. Um, but uh, now, now, when you do that, how do you have to adjust the key, knowing it's going to be sped up? Well, you, you speed it up at a certain like you'd have to basically do the calculation if you wanted to speed it up, um, bring it up one. If you wanted to record one whole step higher, then you'd have to calculate like if you're running at thirty inches per second on the tape machine, you'd have to calculate how you change your tape speed so that. You basically want to record one full step down in order for it to sound one full step higher. 
Um, so there's somebody there with a calculator or a chart figuring all that stuff out. You know, now computers will do all that for you. You just kind of type it in. I want to do one step down and it happens. Um, but you know, things like any kind of like you wanted to time delays, you know, if you had a delay on a vocal or something going back and forth and you wanted to time them, you had to actually like do the calculation, which another rabbit hole to get down, but which makes something like Sergeant Pepper absolutely amazing considering they did it on a four track machine with none of that well the thing that still doesn't i still can't figure out is the strawberry fields thing where you have one one key and one another and they slowed one down and sped one up the two takes to stitch them together i don't know how they got that to be as seamless as it is you know people always say oh well you can hear with the where the where the edit is and does slightly start to speed up a bit it's so minute like it, it blows my mind how well they did that. With 1967 technology, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 actually, when you edited, this is what it was like when I went to school. You physically took the tape and yeah. you cut it with a razor. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I always remember, I mean, I've, I've never done that part myself with a master recording, but certainly watched engineers do it a lot. It's so scary because you just think, totally screw this whole thing up. <laughs> you, you would have, the finger would be shaking as, as yeah. the blade yeah. was poised over the tape. So from Dress Me Up as a Robber, we go into the final track in the album, the much derided in some circles, the much loved in other circles, Ebony and Ivory. Are you a derider or a lover? I think it's wonderful. It's so, it is, of course it's cheesy. Um, and it's the cheese of two of the great masters of rock and roll, R&B, uh, funk, groove, cheese, songwriting. They, they are the best at everything in those, in those worlds. Um, you know, this is before I just called to say I love you, but it's a good kind of template for Stevie on that. Um, but it's also two guys who are, I think, honestly, really enjoying playing together. And um, as slick as it sounds, it's just two guys on this track. You know, they're both they're playing everything, and uh, you know, I think I think that's part of what what makes it joyful. And then and then those instrumental breakdowns are pretty awesome. Well, it's it's funny because for a track that gets a lot of grief in retrospect, I think when you look at the sales numbers, I mean it was it was 5 weeks at number 1 in Canada and the third highest selling single of the year behind I Love Rock and Roll and Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. It was Stevie Wonder's longest running chart topper. Uh, and the first time that any single released by any member of the Beatles hit the Billboard R&B chart. I mean, millions of people bought this record. Oh, yeah. It was just, it was everywhere. And, uh, you know, I like the fact that, that, like, that kids liked it, that old people liked it, that it was kind of like, I felt like it was a place where popular music transcended 
race and uh, generations and class and everything else. And it just seemed, but I was, you know, I was naive. I was 12. And I thought the world can all just get along and just listen to this song. And I felt the same way about the way it appealed. I didn't really, at that point, I don't think I, I fully connected with the cynicism that people directed at it until much later when I thought, this is not really my style. And now it's my style all over again. <laughs> Great quote from McCartney. It's sort of, uh, I'm sure you've heard the quote, uh, you know, where people have said, well, you know, the White Album could have been uh, much better if it was one single album rather than two double albums. And McCartney's response is, it's the bloody Beatles, it's the bloody White Album. Put yeah. it out. Uh, so he has one of these here where, um, this is a quote, they didn't like Ebony and Ivory, the critics. I can see what they're talking about, but for Christ's sake, it was number one, you know? It did something. You find yourself justifying your successes. It's a funny old state of affairs. Yeah, totally. That's it. Like, I think the, sometimes the more successful something is, the more reason people have to dislike it. And uh, and that's why I think when, when Paul has tried to satisfy those people who dislike that stuff, it's when he fails the most. Because I think it's when he's not thinking about anybody beyond making the music in that moment. Uh, I think, which I think he's very, very good at. That's when he does his best work. And I think Ebony and Ivory is good for that reason. I don't think it is as cynically commercial as people might think it is. I think it is him and Stevie honestly just trying to do something good together. Now, what's that? I mean, you've experienced that. You're in, uh, it's, it's not always an enviable position, but uh, when he talks about, you know, they didn't like it, the critics. Right. Goes with the territory, but I would think it's, it's, I mean, you're a person, it's got to hurt when you've put out something as personal as a song or a record. I mean, that's you, and then somebody right. shits all over it. Well, and, you know, for me, I always felt like I had similar tastes to a lot of the critics, and it's not like I'm creating music in a bubble, um, and I think, well, I like this thing I made, and I like this thing that they like. So why don't they like the thing that I made? Uh, because in my opinion, it should it sits with all that other stuff. Um, so it makes you kind of question: Am I delusional what, about what I'm doing? Am I making it for the wrong reasons, or am I doing it wrong, or is it just about who I am? Um, you know, my 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 favorite thing about the critics was always David Lee Roth's comment that you know the reason the critics all like elvis costello is because they look like him because he looks like them (laughs) (laughs) you know but i thought well i kind of you know i kind of look like them dumpy rock critic (laughs) and it didn't it still didn't matter um but you know you, you can't you can't make it for those people and it took me a long time to fully understand that that you can't that you just can't even worry about that. When, you can- when did you get there, Stephen? I mean, I mean, it's uh, I'm, in my old life. I was a, a hockey play-by-play announcer and regularly savaged on Twitter. Your shit. I didn't like this. You said that, and I don't know if I ever got over it. I'm in my mid fifties. No, I don't. I don't think I'm over it. I mean, that's the thing. Is like people. Some, and it depends on my mood that day, too. Like, people sometimes are just making suggestions. Twitter is the worst because it's just people who are trying to find fault and somehow lift themselves up. I should be doing your job. And I'm like, well, kind of, then then do it. But people who, whatever, listen to my record or come to my concert and then want to make suggestions about how to do it better, they're like, ah. 
I'll I'll listen to what you're what you're suggesting, but it's not because of your suggestion that he's going to get better. No, that's not, that that kind of criticism isn't going to help. I think you want to start doing these shows. Go ahead and do them, and uh, take some of your own advice. At, and I'm sure you'll do a fantastic job. But it won't be my show. Part of what you like about what I do is the fact that I do it. <laughs> but I still, yeah, still, I my sometimes my skin is far too thin for it. Yeah, well, I, I think it's. I think a lot of people. I think they forget when they're ripping somebody for work that they do, uh, I think they forget that it's an actual, it's, it's a person, it's a real person, flesh and blood person with feelings. And I, I think the world we live in, people forget that and they say whatever the hell they want. Right. Yep. Yeah. I don't, uh, not, a, not a great thing about the world, but there's a philosophical discussion uh, <laughs> that could be had on a different uh, podcast. So that's the album. Looking back on it, what are your what are your overall impressions of Tug of War, and where does it sit for you in both your appreciation of work and and in Paul McCartney's vast catalog? Well, you know, I have such great memories. I mean, the cover of the album is him with headphones on, listening, you know, listening to playback or whatever. But that's how that's exactly how I spent so much of my youth listening to this album was with headphones on, lying on the floor in front of the record player in my parents' living room. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a, a record that, okay, he turned 40 when he was making this. And I often think about like where I am in my life compared to McCartney's albums. Um, you know, I'm so old now that I'm, that it's like, I'm, I'm past flowers in the dirt now. And, uh, as far as my, my output goes, but I haven't gotten to that point of making my flowers in the dirt yet. Um, you know, tug of war. I feel like is, it's a it's a great statement. It's an entrance into the next phase for McCartney. Um, and I think some of the songs, like, you know, the ones that I like the most, um, maybe don't have the the longest lives, the deepest impression. I mean, I love take it away, but really, somebody who cares and wanderlust are the ones that stick with me the most. Um, that I think are as good as anything else he's ever done. And I'm always looking for those kinds of songs that'll speak to me uh, on every record he does. Do you still listen to McCartney's new stuff? Did you buy Egypt Station? Did you give that a listen? Yeah, yeah and actually, well, Egypt Station I was very excited about because it was produced by Greg Kirsten, who actually toured with Bare Naked Ladies for a summer when Kevin Hearn was sick. So... I know him very well. I knew his old band, Gagita, used to open for us a lot. So it was very exciting to see him producing a McCartney album of all things. I mean, just so awesome. And, uh, you know, I think he's still, he, he still always has at least something that makes me uh, continue to be in awe of McCartney. Yeah, whatever, whatever he does. Did you talk to your friend about what it was like to produce McCartney? I had, no, I haven't spoken to him about it. I've read lots of interviews about it, though, and it sounds like sounds like it was wild and really fun. Well, you, you'll have to uh, you have to get you have to get a couple of stories and come back and yeah. share them with us. Uh, sure. I, have you ever come close to meeting him, McCartney? Here we go. Yes, uh, one in 1996, Bare Naked Ladies played at a festival in England called the Phoenix Festival, and uh, we played like on the B stage, and then. Um, Alanis, who we knew from home, was playing on the main stage in the afternoon. Her record had just broken. It was the summer of 96. Um, and she still had like 
Taylor Hawkins was still playing drums with her then, I think. And uh, uh, we went backstage to go say hi to Alanis after her set. Um, so we're back behind the main stage and we're talking to her and um, uh, Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips comes up and he's talking to us for a while. And the headliner that night was Neil Young and Crazy Horse. And Wayne said, it was myself and Tyler Stewart. Wayne turned to us and said, I'm going to go up on stage and, and, and watch. Elliot Roberts said it was okay for us to go up and watch. You guys want to join? And we was like, yeah, of course, sure. So we walk up on stage and there's, you know, security is kind of guiding everybody to the side of the stage. And as we get there, Elliot Roberts stops us and he goes, whoa, 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 who are you guys? And we said, oh, we're in this band, Bare Naked Ladies, we're from Canada. And he goes, oh, musicians? Fine, go ahead. And security says, that side of the stage is too busy, cross over. So we cross over the back of the stage and security opens up this, you know, velvet cordon and Wayne and Tyler and myself walk into this little cordoned off area and we look around and we realize it's me and Wayne and Tyler and Paul and Linda McCartney and three of their kids. And that's it. That's the whole thing. And we watched the whole of Neil Young and Crazy Horse. I had watched McCartney drive in. He drove in, drove the family himself, like what well, didn't have a chauffeur or anything else, into the backstage area. So I knew they were there, but I didn't know that they were where we were going to end up. And so, of course, you don't want to bug them. Um, but you know, they're passing a flask around through the show. So of course we take a couple of sips and whatever. And, um, Neil Young's playing and, uh, he'd hit a bum note or something in a solo and McCartney turned, leaned over and nudged me and laughed at, <laughs> at Neil Young's wrong notes and stuff. It was great, but we didn't, you know, I didn't want to bug him. I talked to the kids a fair bit. I remember Stella said, you know, the whole audience is singing Heart of Gold. And she goes, oh, this is one of those nights I'm going to remember forever. And I'm thinking, you're going to remember this forever. Oh, my goodness. You probably have these all the time. I'm <laughs> But uh, as the show finished, then Paul, you know, shook all of our hands. And he said, good luck with everything. And he obviously knew that we were musicians. And, uh, you know, it was just very kind and cordial. And we didn't bug him or, you know, encroach on his space. But I was, you know, feet from him for two hours watching Neil Young. Stephen, did you never hear what he said about you guys? I did read that thing, and I have no idea if it's true or not. But yeah, I want to. I wasn't sure. I mean, the, the quote is uh, for for you listening. It, the quote is that uh, those guys, their harmonies are are way ahead of what we were doing in the Beatles. I mean, they <laughs> they sound great. Um, which I, I couldn't get to the bottom of whether or not. Yeah, what the source for the quote was. Right. Neither could I. So I, I don't know if it's true or not. I'm sure he I'm sure he knows or knew who we were then. And you covered did you guys do a version of Wonderful Christmas Time? Uh yeah, on our Christmas album, Kevin Hearn played a version on on the cheesy organ. <laughs> but I also did a I did a version of Junk with Kevin Hearn and Stephen Duffy on a, a McCartney tribute album several years ago as well. What's your favorite McCartney song to play, Stephen? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, because it depends on what the occasion is. If it's the end of a long jam session, then it's definitely Hey Jude. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, but I don't know. Otherwise, I think it would be something like. So, I mean, I love singing junk. I think that's one of the one, one of the most beautiful songs. Yeah, yeah, and I love the version on the McCartney Unplugged CD. 
yeah. that he yeah. does of junk. Stephen, uh, I cannot thank you enough for the generosity of your time, for what you have had to say. It's been uh, great insight, great stories. Thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. So just a reminder, you can find Stephen with those fantastic Stephen Page at Home online concerts. He plays a full set of requests, his and yours, live from his basement studio every Saturday night as we speak. Uh, And you can go to his website, stephenpage.com. That's stephenpage.com to buy a ticket. I've been to a couple of the shows Really intimate, fun evening as he plays live from his basement studio. You can also find Stephen on all of the social medias and be sure to check out his latest creative offering, Isolation, which is available on all fine streaming platforms. That's it for this episode of The Walrus was Paul. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast catcher. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review and a rating, that really helps because we're just starting out. So if you could do that, fantastic. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram with the handle the underscore RomyCast. RomyCast is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T. That's the underscore RomyCast on both Instagram and Twitter. Twitter. If you have questions, uh, please fire them along and I will do my best to answer them. You can also ask to join our Facebook group. Do a search on Facebook, the Walrus Was Paul podcast Facebook group. So that is up there as well. And the website for the podcast where you can also download it or subscribe is romicast.com. So uh, that is it for now on our next episode. A lot of fun coming up. Talk to one of the most creative people, uh, both musical and otherwise. He's an author. He's an entrepreneur. Dave Bedini, co-founder of the legendary Rio Statics, and now playing occasionally in the Dave Bedini band, will join us next time. And he is going to talk about, track by track, the Beatles' 1967 landmark album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Until then, I'm Paul Romanuk. You take care. Never get tired of being Beatles. When I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, what? Oh, Can we just have a little less guitar in here, Father? Oh, that's all right. John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what we wanted to do, do what we wanted If you think it was all keyed in, you don't scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Market fab. <laughs>